That God we will talk about this morning as we begin our series, What Do You Believe? There is a Trojan horse in the church that is putting truth on trial. Many of us are not paying attention. Truth is being pitted against our sensitivities, against our emotions, against our feelings, against cultural standards, and against a mushy sentimentality that the world tries to define as love and tolerance, but really isn't either. As we begin this series, there's an urgency within the church, and this is not a new urgency. In fact, truth has been put on trial since the Garden of Eden when Satan himself said, did God really say? And as you track through the scriptures, you see that there's continually a call by the prophets, by the leaders of God's people to come back to the truth, to resist false teaching, to resist the lies of the culture, and turn back to the truth. We live in a day and age today when truth is continuing to be put on trial. As you look around the landscape of your life, you realize this is so. There's an unholy, li- an, an unholy li- alliance that's come together in our day and age between our feelings, our emotions, our sensitivities, the things we've learned in culture, and the cultural climate of tolerance that's suggesting that those people who hold to absolute truth or unconditional truth are unloving. That what we need to do with hard and fast absolute truth is inject some love into it and adjust some things and maybe we will come to an agreement that we can live with. I want to be very clear on what we should believe and what I believe the scriptures teach. And that is this, that God's truth is in fact an expression of God's love. They are not divisible things. It is critical for us to understand that um, we must not give in to the idea that in order to be truthful or in order to hold to truth, we have to adjust our emotions and adjust our attitude toward more, being more loving and toning down the truth and compromising the truth in order to do so. It is a demonic plot, in my opinion, to pit truth against love. The present shocking climate that we live in. It's, the devilish, it's a devilish creation to suggest that there are left and right-wing Christians. I object to any adjectives being put in front of the word Christian. You're not a left-wing Christian. You're not a right-wing Christian. You're not whatever. I'm going to resist some of the words that I hear out there because you'll misunderstand me. Christian is Christian. You either are or you aren't. There is a definition, and it is single. And so I I think it's important for us to understand that the scriptures make it abundantly clear how truth and love relate. Speak the truth in love. The Bible's presented this way. Truth is always cradled in love. Truth is an expression of God's love. 
If I don't tell you the truth, I actually don't love you. If you don't tell your children the truth, you don't actually love them. I think it's necessary for us to understand that if it isn't truth, it isn't love. And if it isn't loving, it isn't the whole truth. That's how things relate together. That's how God has packaged the truth. And so as we begin once again to embark upon a series uh, with respect to the truth and answering this most important question, what do you believe? More importantly, what should you believe? More importantly, what is the truth? I want to make sure we launch it this way and understand that everything that we do and everything that we say with respect to the truth is cradled in love. It has to be. It must be. As I embark upon the assignment for today, I was almost overwhelmed in my study this week because my responsibility is almost to be a master of ceremony this morning and introduce the most important being in the universe. I'm actually to come out here, and I, I realized with an overwhelming sense of responsibility this, this week that with trepidation and fear and humility and privilege and gratitude, I'm going to be introducing to you the most important being in all the universe. I'm in introducing to you today God. Think about that. Have you ever been introduced by anybody? Have you ever had to do something, you've had to share something at something, and they've introduced you, and you're like, I don't even, that doesn't even sound like me. I'm not sure where they got that information. That's like so out there. Do you realize that I stand before you this morning with God as audience? And my responsibility is to tell you about Him? What I'm very thankful about is the fact that I'm not making this up. This is not about hearsay. This is not about experience alone. This is not about feelings or emotion. I'm sharing with you what I've found in the Word of God about God. And I'm, I'm supposed to do that in about 35 minutes, which is an impossible task. But I'm simply going to introduce, and, uh, introduce the idea of God and who He is and, and, and challenge you to, toward a lifetime of learning who He really is. Father, as we gather together this morning, uh, you already know the task is impossible. But what you want me to say, I, I will, by your grace, and in the time that you have given me, O oh God. And I pray that you will cause me to bring an awareness to your people of the immensity and awesomeness and worship worthiness of our great, great, great God. O oh, Father, I just pray that I might paint a picture as best I can of the truth about God, that we might live the truth about God. Help us, O oh Lord. Help me today, Father. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. Many of you have heard of the name Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet. In fact, he was called by many the weeping prophet, and there's a reason for that. In, in his day and age, he found himself pretty much in a similar situation that we find ourselves in. It's distressing to most of us as we look around in the climate of even evangelicalism and realize that the erosion of truth is happening faster than we could have ever imagined. And Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, is beside himself with sorrow and sadness as he considers his people in this 
era of time he was living in, this truth up for grabs time, which isn't a new phenomenon, as I said to you, and, and it, it describes uh, the time of Jeremiah. He was writing uh, before the exile and during the exile, and he was calling out to God's people, oh, won't you turn back to the truth? Will you please listen to what God has to say and stop running after the, the gods of this world and, and, and uh, chasing after your emotions and your feelings and what you want and how you hope to balance things out and how, what you think is true? Won't you please turn to the truth? And he cries out in verse 1 of Jeremiah chapter 9, Oh, that my head were a spring of water. That my whole head was just water because I have so many tears. I'm so distressed. I mean, have you ever looked around at the state of of what's called the church of Jesus Christ? Have you ever looked around us and and realized, uh, where are we? What is wrong with us? Have you ever wept? Have you ever been sorrowful? If not, you're not paying attention. And my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a lodging place for travelers so that I might leave my people and go away from them. For they are all adulterers, a crowd of unfaithful people. They make ready their tongue like a bow to shoot lies. It is not by truth that they triumph in the land. They go from one sin to another. They do not acknowledge me, declares the Lord. And then he describes what, quite frankly, is so similar to the age we live in, verse 23. Let not the wise boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. Is that not what we see all around us? Everyone wants to chase after knowledge and Be the authority on something. Everybody wants to chase after power. Everyone's chasing after riches. As Chuck Colson in his book, Loving God, says, it's a counterfeit value system that our world chases after and is wooing and seducing the church of Jesus Christ. Chuck Swindoll in his book, Christian Life, pointed his finger at the church of Jesus Christ and said, how is this any different than the church of Christ? We chase after fame. We chase after success. We chase after materialism. We chase after performance, and we make celebrities out of people who bring God's word. Are you kidding me? A human being in the church, a celebrity... There's only one celebrity in the whole universe. That's that's our great God. And so God winds up this section by saying this, but let him or her who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me. That's it. The most important pursuit of your life is to understand and know God. What I'm introducing to you this morning is a lifelong journey, the pursuit that God calls you to, the most important pursuit of your life, not knowledge, not power, not riches, 
but that you understand and know God. That I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. I change a man, God says. When a man or woman understands and knows me, I change them. They go from arrogant and oppressive and greedy to kind and just and righteous before your very eyes. Understand means to have a correct insight on how to conduct yourself. That's what God is asking of you. To have the correct insight into who he is so that you will know how to conduct yourself in life. And the idea of know, that word to know God, is, is to actually experience him, to sense him as not just some intellectual exercise, but to actually know the person of God personally, to experience his attributes, his character, to have the image of God that has fallen be restored and redeemed this is what we boast in. If that's going on your, in your life, brag about that. Brag about knowing God. I want to pick out very quickly for you this morning five foundational truths about God that hopefully whets your appetite. Because that's the best I can do. How could we plumb the depths of God this morning? These five foundational truths, four of them are taken from a book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. The fifth one I've added myself because he didn't put it in and I thought he missed it. Well, who am I to quibble with Packer? Okay, I am going to. I replaced one of his five because this one of his five I thought was more about knowing us than knowing God. And the one that I put in is the second point. We'll get there. The first is this, God has spoken to man. God has spoken to man. Let, this, let all of this sink in afresh. Nothing's going to be new to you this morning. You're not going to hear anything new, I'm pretty certain. But, but think about it new, anew. God has spoken to man. The living God, the God of the universe, and the Bible is his word given to us to make us wise unto salvation. How about the urgency of that? In 2 Timothy Chapter 2, 3, chapter 2, or chapter 3, verses 16, 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. So that, why? So that the man or the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture, the Bible is his word given to us to make us wise unto salvation. Where do we get that? Verse 15, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. How important is that? When you think about this, the so what that God has spoken, the so what is that we might know and understand and welcome and receive salvation, the rescue of our sinful souls that we might be made uh, new in Christ and, and, and brought into an eternal relationship with God the Father and to live with him forever. 
In order to be saved, in order to be rescued from final judgment of God, God has spoken. He's given us a language to be learned, a discipline of reading his word. For those of you who only like picture books. And increasingly, the generation that's raised above us only wants to look at Facebook and TV in their computer terminal. They don't want to read anything. They don't want to read a book. Read the book. You've got to read the book. You have to know your God. You have to set aside time. Okay, take out your electronic device and read him there. That's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll concede that. But read about him. God has spoken to you and you have in your language his words. And to the culture that we live in that says, oh, this is just a book, this is just an ancient writing, this is ancient ideas from ancient people, it's not applicable to today, you need to understand something about one of the attributes of God. God is immutable. Malachi 3, 6, I, the Lord, do not. Do you know what immutable means? What's that? That's a big word. (laughs) Does not change. I, the Lord, do not change. The words that I have spoken stand true. True in the past, true in the present, true in the future. Cultures will come and go, but my word stands as truth. God will not change. He's the same today, yesterday, and forever. His words are the same today, yesterday, and they will stand true. God himself is truthful. Psalm 119, 160, Numbers 23, 19, John 14, 6, Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Your word is truth. For all these people who talk about the relativization of the the word of God, I'd like to take them up to the CN Tower and talk about relative things. Seriously, I I know you're going to feel like I'm really violent today, but but I, I just, I take them up to the CN Tower and say, let's talk about relativity. Let's talk about the law of gravity and how relative it is to our culture. Uh, let's let's uh, see how much you think it's just an old idea, the law of gravity. I want you to go out on the outside thing, you know, and not wear one of those harnesses. I want you just to sashay around the CN Tower, you know, and I want you to lean back, and I want you just to sort of throw yourself off the CN Tower, and I want you to tell me that the law of gravity is an old idea. You know what has happened to us? We have drifted away from calling the word of God the law of God. We believe in the law of gravity. We believe in the law of a grenade. You pull that pin, how many people are going to stay in that place? Just an old idea? I don't think so. They're all running. The law of God doesn't change. That's an awesome thing. And God cannot lie. God is truthful. He is truth. So how should this truth affect you, how you live? Should it just be advice? Should it be a collection of interesting ideas and an alternative in the event that my feelings aren't hurt? Just an idea, an option? It's the way to live. It's the word to believe. And it's the way to salvation. There is no other way. It teaches us the way of salvation. 
Secondly, God is creator, making everything in the universe from nothing, being the source and purpose for all things, and solely responsible for sustaining everything that he created so that in everything he might have the supremacy. In the beginning was God. There's some realities to understand about this. He is self-existent, which means underived. He always existed. There was never a time that God did not exist. There was never a time before God. In the beginning, God. And in the beginning, God created from nothing. He spoke the universe into existence. And there was from what there formerly was not. God himself just decided to speak massive balls of mass into existence and fling them into space and utilize and create the laws of centrifugal force and centripetal force and gravity and and have these massive balls circulating in a perfect orbit around other massive gravitational forces that he created with great light and flung that into the universe all in one day because he spoke. And then in another day he spoke and created things on the earth and made them. He created the creatures and the fish and the sea and the waters and everything there is. Day after day for six days he just spoke and things became. That's what the Bible teaches us from nothing, Hebrews 11.3. This is an amazing God, an incredible God who's self-sufficient. He existed in eternity past. Long before he created the universe, he was in existence. Entirely sufficient, needing nothing. When Moses uh, encountered God in Exodus 3 and said, how am I supposed to introduce you to the people when I go back to Egypt? Well, what's going to be the introduction? What am I, how am I going to tell them? They're going to say, who sent you? What, what should I say? And what did God say? Here's the introduction. Take this to them. Say that I am has sent you. I am the existent one, the one who always was, the one who is. What, what a perfect title for our God, the one who always is, always was, always will be. The I am dwells in the eternal present. Wow. Created the universe. What's your problem? I mean, seriously, if this God, if we believe who he really is, can do all of that, is there anything too hard for him in our life? He created for his glory. The creation itself is a general revelation of his glory. We sang in the song this morning, the heavens declare the glory of God. Creation is a result of the glory of God bursting forth into visual form. God just outed his glory. Poof. God just flowered and the universe exists. The glory of God is just pushed out so that we can see something of his glory, even though he himself dwells in unapproachable light. Yet the fullness of his glory is held back because we couldn't contain it. We couldn't, as, you, as creatures, even... even even visualize or, or be in, in the presence of the fullness of the glory of God. That's why 
God said to Moses, I'm going to put you in this cave, this cleft of the mountain. I'm going to let my goodness pass in front of you because if you see me, you will die, Moses. Your body's not even made to to cope with the glory of God. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, and he is redeeming for the restoration of his glory, his creation, and those he loves. Creation has fallen short. We are now, the creation itself is left groaning and frustrated, decaying, waiting the sons of God to be revealed so that we might give Christ the supremacy. Christ himself is creator. What are we supposed to do with all of this? So what? So what that God is the creator? We're supposed to view Christ as supremely sufficient in all things. As inventor, as maker. The only sensible way that humankind should respond to God is, God, you are the inventor. You are the maker. You are the one who knows how I operate best or how I should operate Instead, humanity is questioning the reality of God. They sit in science classrooms and try to pretend that you came from things that were lower forms of you or worse than that. He has the supreme rights over all there is. This is his stuff. Everything that we have that we claim we own, he actually owns. He owns us. He owns you, he owns me. And he knows how we are supposed to function and operate. Well, there's a third uh, aspect of God that I wanted to look at this morning is this, that God is triune. That's why it's point three. There are within the Godhead three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we did so miserably in our survey test on this. I'll pull it out in a few seconds. In the work of salvation, all three act together. The Father purposing redemption, the Son securing redemption, the Spirit applying it to our lives. And He is to be known and glorified and enjoyed. What does this mean? That God Himself was active in creation and in recreation, all three persons of the one God. The reason we use the word triune, it's a little better than the word trinity because it's the triunity of God. The Germans have a word that we don't have, a better word, and I've translated into English, that we, are the, we, we see, view God as the three oneness of God. God is one, but he manifests himself in three persons. Now, don't even try to get your mind wrapped around this. This is just simply true. And his attributes, by the way, because he is indivisible, because, because he was the one God in three persons, his attributes are indivisible, which means he's, he's never just merciful or just. He is merciful and just. You, you encounter a whole lot of people say, well, the God that I believe in, uh, my God, he, he's loving, but he would never be judged. He would never judge anybody. He's not a wrathful God. Really? Now, who died and made you the expert of God? Where were you when God flung the stars into existence? God is indivisible in his characteristics and attributes. God is loving and God is wrathful. It's not an either-or proposition for God, ever. 
The one God is made up of three persons who together are the one God. It may be pictured this way. This is an excellent picture. You should copy this and you should learn it and you should know it. This will help you from becoming heretical. The Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. But the Son is God. The Father is God and the Holy Spirit is God. This is the best way to get your mind wrapped around this truth. They, were, they are equal, each fully God. Yet they are distinct in their roles, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But they are united without separate existence. The Father didn't die on the cross. The Son did. And because God is a person, He's personal God, He has a personality. God rejoices, God's grieved, God is angry, God, is, God pities, God sympathizes. But God is never surprised by his emotion like we are. We're regularly surprised by emotion. I can't believe how angry I am. I'm not. I can't believe how sad I am. I can't believe how excited I am. I can't believe how happy I am, right? Emotions catch us by surprise. I'll resist the urge to talk any further about this because I'll just get in trouble. Some of us are more surprised than others. I gotta stop, I'll, I'll get in trouble. But God is never surprised by his emotions. He chooses his emotions. God is entirely in control of his emotions, always. He's not a victim of his emotions or a victim of circumstances ever. But God is personality. We relate to him by personality. He's eternal, the eternal God, Deuteronomy 33, 27. The eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Is that not good? The finite mind can contemplate the infinite, but we will never, ever be able to grasp it. He's omnipresent. His immensity is everywhere. He has no physical qualities that occupy space. So he is in a different dimension. We, we need to understand that we live in, a th- in three dimensions. We, um, we, we, everything that we are is organized by height, width, and depth, and then time. So, for instance, when you, um, when you triangulate the position of a person, a material person, that you go by longitude, latitude, and altitude. And now, of course, because we have Facebook and time, we can actually pinpoint people longitude, latitude, altitude, and time, the exact time they're there. It's like, I'm at Starbucks now. (laughs) Like, I care. You know, like, I really, like, seriously, like, I care that you're at Starbucks now, but anyway, that's that's another whole story. No, uh, you know what? I, as your pastor, I care deeply. I care care deeply that you're at Starbucks. But God does not live locked into this three dimension and time. He's outside of that. He, He is immaterial. He is spirit. Therefore, he occupies all of space. But space is not God. Just like light in a light bulb, the light doesn't become the bulb. It occupies all of the bulb. But the bulb still stays a bulb. The light is itself a property. God occupies the space. God is spirit, in essence, invisible. 
He dwells in unapproachable light. 1 Timothy 17, or 117, 6, 15 to 16. Which means we cannot see him and live. But it says in the Bible something really cool. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God someday. Now here's where you all got real crazy on me, in the graphs. Forty percent of you either agreed or were uncertain with this statement. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Now, I want to believe in my heart of hearts that you just misunderstood the question. But maybe some of you are confused by the terms of Jesus, the only begotten Son of God. That word begotten doesn't mean that God the Father made Jesus. Begotten means he's unique, one of a kind. The triunity of God preexisted the arrival of Jesus to this earth. I hope you realize that God the Son wasn't born at Christmas. God the Son existed from eternity past and just took on human flesh at Christmas. God eternal clothed himself in humanity. 100% God, 100% human. Jesus is not a created being. That's heresy. That's Jehovah's Witness theology. How can that creep into the evangelical church of Jesus Christ? Jesus is not a created being. But then you had a problem with the Holy Spirit too. And he thinks you've been watching Star Wars too much. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is not force. He is a personal being. You should have said disagree. The Holy Spirit is a force but not a personal being. I disagree vehemently with that. How many disagree? You all do now. Come on, put your hands up. You all disagree. We disagree. That's New Age Star Wars theology. May the force be with you. I want the Holy Spirit with me. I don't know about anybody with me. I want the Holy Spirit with me. Why? Because he's God. Let's make sure we understand the truth about these things. God is most glorified, Piper says, when we are most satisfied with him. What does this all mean to us? We're to enjoy him. Knowing the Trinity, knowing the Godhead, knowing who God is and his attributes, and we've only just touched the surface of a few of them. So how do you enjoy God? Since we know in the Westminster Catechism, 1647, that the purpose of man, is the chief end of man, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I like what John Piper has done with the catechism. And I think he's smart enough to have the right to do this. He has rewritten it to say this, men's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Starting today, starting right now, that's what we're to do. And how do you enjoy God? You welcome, you live out fully his attributes that are communicable, the ones that, that we can have, his grace, his love, his peace, his kindness, his goodness, all of those, the things that God wants to give you, that's how you enjoy God. By finally becoming what you were always supposed to be, by, by seeing the fallen image of God that's been marred in you, restored and recreated into the image of God. That's how you will enjoy God. 
Anything less than that will not be the enjoyment of God. As we walk in our sinfulness, we will not enjoy God. But as we turn from our sinfulness and turn to God and walk in His ways, learn His ways, we will enjoy Him. The more you are like Him, the more you enjoy Him. That works for all of us. The more your friends are like you, you like them. Isn't it true? Why can't you just be like me? The more we know God, the more we're like God, the more we understand. Listen, this is the pursuit that Jeremiah is talking about, understanding and knowing God. Fourthly, God is Lord and King over his world. 1 Timothy 6, 15, powerful verse. A couple of verses before. I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is, is mortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. What a powerful salutation that is uh, of who God is. The Lord is... God is Lord and King over his world. He rules all things for his own glory, displaying his perfections in all that he does in order that men and angels may worship and adore him. If I understand our survey correctly, there is 55% of you in here this morning or represented in our congregation who believe that we live in a world of events that God does not determine. 55% of you or that his power is limited, or that he is a struggling king, or that he is defeated time and time again by by the kingdom of man, or that some other power is at the helm and God lives in a constant state of surprise. Furthermore, 55% of you are sitting there right now not being certain of who's in charge of the next 30 seconds of your life. How could you live like that? The truth of God's word is available to you. This is not true. The sovereign God, we we answer God knows everything. We believe God knows everything but does not determine all that happens in the world. 43% of you said yes. God knows everything but he does not determine all that happens in the world. So God is omniscient but he's not omnipotent. Wow. I think you need to rethink this one. Listen, God is Lord and King, sovereign God of all things. God is completely sovereign over all that happens, both good and evil. The Word of God is clear on this. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. So many texts we can turn to, and we'll look at a couple really quickly. Ephesians 1, verse 11. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out. You're not looking at your Bibles, are you? You're just depending on me to tell you this stuff. There's a word there. Who's there? According to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Everything. God is either sovereign over everything or he is not sovereign at all. You can't be sort of sovereign. 
You can't be partially sovereign. You can't be sovereign in terms of knowing everything, but not sovereign in terms of being able to do anything about it. Remember the story of Joseph when he um, was imprisoned? He said to his brothers, you meant it for evil. Genesis 50, 20. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. In Romans 8, 28, for how many things? All things. Just good things? Just lovely things? Just righteous things? All things work together for good. And how could all things work together for good unless somebody is working all those things together for good? Do you think they just accidentally fall together and they, shazam, it turned into good? Think of God as some sort of genie? Your life is some sort of luck? All things work together for good to those who are called according to his purposes. Here's what Daniel records in Daniel 4, verse 35. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. Make no mistake about it. Everything is servant to God. Satan is God's Satan. The demons are God's demons. The world is God's and everything in it. Everything in the universe belongs to God. Everything that happens happens because of the determined will of God. God is completely sovereign over all that happens, both good and bad, without causing evil. He uses evil to accomplish his good purposes. Do you realize that God restrains and employs evil to bring judgment upon the wicked and to bring discipline to his people? He directs and he permits. He holds man and angels accountable. We are responsible and accountable, but God is in charge, totally sovereign. We don't have, I mean, this is a gigantic subject, but the word of God is clear. God is omnipotent, Mark 14, 36. There's no titanic battle here. There's no dualistic struggle. That's not Christianity. That's not the God of the Bible. He's not in competition with anybody. There is no competition for God. Evil is not in competition with God. God is mer merely defeating evil every day. If he wanted to destroy evil, he could, and he will. But every day of our lives, he is, defeating, he is choosing to use us to defeat evil. Every time you bring a cup of cold water to someone who's thirsty in Jesus' name, you are defeating evil. Every time you say no to sin, you are defeating evil through God's strength. Every time you represent one of his attributes to people, you are defeating evil. Every time you stand for truth as it is displayed in God's word and don't cave into your feelings and your emotions and your experiences and all that conflict with the truth, you are defeating evil. God's plan for this era right now is to defeat evil and to use it as his servant to bring good. But he's entirely in charge. In the next 30 seconds of your life, God's totally in charge. He's got it. Nothing's going to come into your life that hasn't first crossed his desk. Satan wasn't able to touch Job without first going to God and asking permission. That's how life functions. God is omnipotent, all-powerful, 
the sheer power to command the sun to exist and then harness its mass into a galactic position. Think about that power. And he's omniscient. He knows everything and brings anything he knows to pass. God is good. And only God is good. His moral perfections are legendary in the scriptures. He drives all, his goodness drives all of his other perfections. God is love. God is all wise. Do you realize what that means? Because he's all wise, he has the ability to know and to choose the best and highest goal and the right way to attain it. And then he has the power to enact it. Finally, God is Savior. Hosea 13.4. But I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall acknowledge no God but me and no Savior except me. In Titus 2, 10 and 13, and Jude 25, that title is credited to Jesus Christ, our Savior. And God is Savior, active in sovereign love through Lord Jesus Christ to rescue believers from the guilt and power of sin, to adopt us as his sons, and to bless us accordingly. Piper put it this way, the wisdom of God devised a way for the love of God to deliver the sinners from the wrath of God while not compromising the righteousness of God. Who but God could put all of that together? God is on a mission to redeem the world, to buy back as many as receive him. To them he will give the right to become the children of God. God's grand purposes include the redeeming of fallen creation and the people he loves. He came all the way to earth to do it, but make no mistake about it, for the praise of his glory. Everyone receives the justice of God. Those of us who come to receive him receive the justice of forgiveness, the justice of redemption. Those who refuse to receive him receive the justice of rejection. But it is total justice for all. Only God could do that. And for what reason? The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 1, 15 and 19, so that you may know him. And in knowing him that you might have hope in him. And in hoping in him that you might experience his power. And ultimately to be with him forever. The amazing thing, as Professor Rebecca Pippert put it, is to know all of this means that God knew everything about me and you and welcomed me and you into his family anyway. Sometimes I ask my wife, now that you know me, would you have married me all over again? And she lies to me every time and says... Of course, Rick, I would. But you know something? That question's put to Jesus. Jesus, now that you know me, would you have brought me into your family anyway? 
And he doesn't have to lie. He says yes every time. That's our God. Our Father, I pray this morning and thank you. I praise you. You are awesome. You are mighty. You, we've just touched, oh, I, I don't even know how to describe the minimal look we have had at you and your splendor today. But oh God, I pray that it might increase our enthusiasm to understand you more and to know you more, oh God. The life pursuit of understanding and knowing our God for Jesus' sake, amen. Let's stand together as we close in prayer. <clears throat> Charles Haddon Spurgeon called the Prince of Preachers, although he would have hated that title because any of us who are serving the Lord and all of us who are serving the Lord are merely privileged servants of God. But a century ago or more said, wrote this, as he looked at the landscape of his time, this is what he said. It's so disheartening to see the increase of wickedness in the world and of false teaching in the once sound churches. It is good to be frequently reminded that the Lord God will prevail and righteousness will one day be the rule on earth. Now I could say much more, but I will not accept just this. I want those who are the Lord's people to be very brave about the things of God. There has been too much of yielding and apologizing and compromising. I cannot bear it. It grieves me to see one truth after another surrendered to the enemy. A brother writes to me saying, you do not put so much mirth into your preaching as you used to do. When the captain at sea whistles, then all the sailors feel more cheerful, my friend adds. Whistle a bit. I will do so. This is my way of whistling to cheer my shipmates. I believe in the everlasting God and in his unchanging truth. And I am persuaded that the gospel will win the day, however long and stern the conflict rages. Therefore, my brethren, be not ashamed of the gospel, nor of Christ your Lord, who died that he might save you eternally. Watch you, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. Even if it did come to this, that every other man in the world were against the truth of God, stand you to his word and say, let God be true and every man a liar. Our Father and our God, may this congregation stand courageously and boldly and uncompromisingly for the truth. May it not be said of us that one truth after another is being compromised by our feelings and by our emotions and by the spirit of the age, but oh God, may we stand firm on the truth courageously, oh God, for in it are the words of eternal life, for in it do we learn of salvation. Oh God, let our God be true and every man a liar. For Jesus' sake, amen.